Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones, the Reverend Hunter, alongside Brandon. What's up, buddy? What is happening, Tony? Not a whole lot in uh in my uh I don't know boat or whatever. <laughs> What's going on with you? Are you in a boat? I uh, no, I'm not. I have no idea what I'm talking. About. <laughs> You're in a basement, not a I'm boat. In a basement, but I imagine it to be my boat, just so I yeah. feel like I'm doing something outside. Yes, I have walked the dog. I tried to walk the dog before it hit 90 degrees. It's going to be a scorcher today. I've got I've got to harvest some cherries off my cherry tree to make some cherry pie. Give it to my friends at Pie and Mighty Pie Shop. If you're in the Twin Cities, you have got to get a pie from Pie and Mighty. They're not even a sponsor of the show. I'm just giving them a shout out because they're amazing pies. And they're going to be having some Jones Perry cherries in their cherry pies in the next couple weeks so i'll have to go there just because i like the name i I, you know what it's not far from where you live actually yeah check them out pie and mighty i'm a fan of any business that has a pun for a name i uh (laughs) clever word plays are great i will i'll support anybody that does that. i agree a lot we're gonna make zoodles tonight from uh zucchini the garden this is just garden time you know what i'm saying it's hot perfect it rained an inch last night, so things are just popping out there. It's probably time to mow the lawn. It's a nice time to eat clean, too, on these hot days. You got it. That is that is good. It is true. Eat clean. Yeah. Uh, dude, I think this conversation today with Father Ted Vitale is just extraordinary. This guy, he's like, I just found out about this guy because uh david lemire of the wild huntsman podcast turned me on to him i was on that podcast a while back we're gonna get him on our podcast but he said you should look check out this father ted father ted vitale uh is a philosopher he's a passionist monk and priest he teaches at st louis university he's been there for three decades uh he's been uh, a passionist for five decades. He is also an avid hunter. He is an ethicist for Boone and Crockett, which is maybe the oldest conservation group in the world. They, they've they trademarked the uh, phrase fair chase. They're big. And it's a very small group. It's like 250 people total who are members of Boone and Crockett. He's one of them. And they are one of the leading organizations on ethical hunting we talk about that we talk about christian theology we talk about the time that christ came to him as a wolf um it's extraordinary he's an extraordinary guy with great stories and i really really loved it yeah he was he was so much fun for me to listen to i feel like i I aged in five years of wisdom (laughs) Just just from listening to him. It's such a different way of thinking than I normally do, which is I, I completely appreciate. It's it's awesome. Yeah. His, uh, I, I beg listeners' uh, forgiveness for there's some crackling sometimes when he talks. He is... Um, he he t- he told me on a phone call before the podcast that he stopped evolving technologically with the electric typewriter. So he had never done a podcast through his computer before. Uh, it was a little crackly, but I really think the content is so good that if you can overlook some of the uh, weird little audio, I think you'll get so much out of it. I know I'm going to listen back to this one um, 
just because there's so much wisdom from this guy, and I hope to have him back on again. So I am, am excited to introduce listeners to Father Ted Vitale, and I think you'll love our conversation. As always, please subscribe, like, review, share, let your friends know. If you like the Reverend Hunter podcast, we will continue to bring you great conversations about finding meaning in the outdoors. Here is my conversation with Father Ted Vitale. Father Ted, Father Ted Vitale, thanks so much for coming on the Reverend Hunter. You're you are a Reverend Hunter. Yeah, yes, I guess I am. I never Both a thought reverend of myself. And a hunter. Maybe an irreverent one, but we won't go into that. You didn't <laughs> hey, say that okay. after answer for my sins. <laughs> hey, first first things first, what? man. How was okay. the fishing yesterday? Oh, that's interesting. I was on my pontoon boat. Actually, I have a couple of boats. I have a bass boat, too. I went with a friends of mine. It's about a 100-mile drive from here. It's east, in eastern Illinois. It's a lake that we went to with my friend's mother, of uh, friends for, God, for almost 40 years, over 38 with Junie. She died 10 years ago. It was Somebody asked me what it was like, and I said it was a very deeply moving experience it wasn't fun but it was better than fun it was deeper because it was also something that we had done together as a family me as a friend to the family but they were as much family to me as you could ask so it was bittersweet in a lot of ways we didn't do any mm -hmm. fishing we just ran the boat around the lake for for about two hours yeah uh, so i didn't uh, go at it fishing wise i just we were visiting that's we're, nice. The way I wrote it to a friend of mine, we were revisiting the narrative. Not the past, but the narrative. We were recapitulating the narrative. Okay. Next week, I'm going to go to Bull Shoals. That I take, that'll be fishing. Then that's all. That's 100% fishing. Bass, and what bass are you going to fish? What, ba okay, bass and walleye. Nice. Yeah, mostly uh, smallmouth. Bull Shoals is dominated by smallmouth, not largemouth bass, which is a game of fish. It's fun. Yeah. So I would give it the old college try. Nice. Okay, and, and also, uh, before we get into you, tell me about your dog. Lily, well, she's walking around. When she hears this thing go on, she thinks there's somebody in the house here to play with her. Then she <laughs> ignores me. She's a okay. yellow lab, a British yellow lab, so she's small. She only weighs yeah. 60 pounds. She's really a magnificent, beautiful animal, actually. She's my pal. I'm never, uh, I'm not a, a duck hunter, so that's what her, you know, she's a retriever. Yeah. I didn't buy her for that. She's purebred. She's purebred too. I bought her okay. because I wanted a pet, a, a friend. Okay, and she's <laughs> she seems to like everybody more than me. But <laughs> anyway, we are pals. She sleeps at the back of my bed, and sometimes she doesn't give an inch. Honestly, I have to get her because I need to stretch my legs. <laughs> uh, she's a good friend. Yeah, yeah. I've, I'm, a, I'm a yellow. I, I'm a yellow lab guy as well. I, my yeah. current yellow lab is also a small one. It's a male uh, named Crosby, and he, yeah, he's also he's under sixty five pounds, but um, yeah. he does love to retrieve. And yeah, well, especially for me, like uh, I do a lot of pheasant hunting in South Dakota, oh, sure. and it's easy for labs to get overheated there in the early season. Yes. You know, so the bigger bigger labs overheat that's well fast. Put. So. Yeah, that's true. Well, you got um, a hunter paradise yeah. when you got pheasants. We don't have a pheasant here anywhere near except north of the Missouri River and extremely limited. We used to have a lot of quail here. When I came here in 71, 
for grass studies, it was not uncommon to bust covey after covey of quail. Whether you're hunting for them or rabbits, or whatever it was be, whatever it would be. Now, I rarely see, very, very rarely see uh, uh, quail. The ice, we had ice storms in the late 70s and 80s, early 80s, and it seemed to wipe them out. I don't know. I never saw well, recover. Yeah, I mean, if you ever want to get that dog out uh, in South Dakota, man, drop me a line because I'd love to take you out there. <laughs> That's all the right. Uh, you right. could you I'm could up. see her internet, and then we could duck hunt there too. There's some great duck hunting out there, and, and, uh, the and in Minnesota now. too. Yeah. <laughs> um. All right. Hey, what what the heck is a passionist? It's a religious order. I belong yeah, to. Yeah. Like what, how, where, who who founded it? What what was the? That's all right. It's three hundred years old. It's our anniversary right now. Three hundred okay. years. It was uh, founded in Italy by Saint Paul the Cross, or Paul. You know, he went by his title, Saint Paul the Cross. And so it was a monastic preaching order. Now that's an in, in the 18th, 19th centuries, even early 20th, a number of the religious orders that emerged during that time, like the Redemptorists, were both monastic and apostolic at the same time. They were mixed orders, and ours was fiercely monastic. I mean, fiercely. Yeah, we lived it from, I wouldn't say part-time, I'd say 24-7 and beyond. And it was deeply monastic, and we were great mm -hmm. preachers. That's what we think I'm such a good interviewer for. What are you kidding me? I'm a passionist, pal. <laughs> and it, yeah. it focuses I mean, on I, it focuses on Good Friday. We are the center of our spirituality is the passion and death of Christ. Okay, and for me, I've never forgotten that. I mean, it's central to my thinking. So when I think of Saint Paul, the letter to the Colossians, we fill up those things wanting in the suffering of Christ. I take that literally true. I yeah, take that yeah, absolutely yeah. true. Okay, I'm a passionist. Yeah. I see the world through Good Friday in the hope of Easter Sunday, but I look at it right into the eyes of Good Friday. I, wouldn't you say, though, that like a lot of people have heard of um, Je Jesuits, you know, Franciscans, um, uh, Benedictines, you don't, I guess, Passionists aren't as well known, maybe because they're a little more recent, I guess. I mean, we're not as you know, big in enough, the, in, but either. In the grand, not, yeah, how many, how many are you? How many Passionists are there? Uh, worldwide, about 1,500. Before, we had three to four or 5,000, but we suffered massive attrition. My province alone, we had 650. Now we have way under 100. Okay. okay. The only hope we have for this continent, this hemisphere, is that we are growing significantly in the Caribbean. So I see us really becoming much more centralized out of the Caribbean, principally Jamaica, Haiti, um, uh, Haiti, Jamaica, mm -hmm. Mexico, elements there. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't see, I don't have a lot of hope for, uh, the North American church as being a center for us passionists. We might yeah. be, we have still have retreat houses and we're very good at retreats and missions, uh, uh, parish missions, but I, I don't know. I've been on my own in a sense that because I live a professional life, I've been outside the immediacy of the community. Of course, I'm still a passion, still a priest and all of that. Okay. So canonically, yeah. I'm still as I ever was, yeah. but I haven't lived in community in 30 years, 31 years. I've been on my own living in an apartment, in a condo. Okay. Because I teach at SLU. And do you, and do you have to kind of get, uh, I mean, back in the day you went to get a PhD in philosophy. Did you have to get permission oh, sure. uh, from your order to pursue that? 
Because that, that, I mean, and and passionists, as you say, are preachers. I think when when people think of Catholic scholars, maybe Jesuits come to mind first. So it was was yours a little bit unconventional of a path for a passionist? Not if you were there at the time. And when they assigned me in 1971, it was because we taught within our own monasteries, our own students, okay? So we taught all the way from college through ordination, so roughly 10 years. And so we had um, philosophy. We majored in philosophy, and it was in our Jamaica monastery. Well, so I was being trained to go back into the Jamaica, Mon- Jamaica Long Island, New York City, okay, mm-hmm. uh, to to teach philosophy to our passionate students as they were coming through the system. But in 1975, they closed our passionist monastery school. Hmm. I think they saw that it was, I don't know, their numbers weren't there. And we switched to St. John's University. So any students we had were going to study at St. John's. And so at that time, in a sense, I was a man with a profession acquiring a degree that wasn't going to be used. And at that time, the consultor, the provincial consultant, number two man in the outfit in the eastern province, my province, his name was Norbert Dorsey, became Bishop of Orlando eventually. But at that time, he was a consultant. And he said to me, Ted, go out and find a job for yourself. They never did that in the past. So I did. And I went to Bellarmine College in Louisville. We had a monastery across the street. And I lived in our monastery. This was from 1976. And, and, and now, were you were you teaching a generalist philosophy, like sure. un, philosophy to undergrad? So you cover yeah. everything from Plato to postmodernism. Yes, exactly. Yeah, in okay. fact, really postmodern because I'm a Whitehead scholar. Yeah, very much. Oh, so. no kidding. Yeah, that's what I did oh, my stuff on hard charring. Why yeah. I run my dissertation on Archon. Oh my gosh, so, I've I've got so many friends who've come out of Claremont and are oh, just sure. crazy <laughs> about Whitehead. And yeah, yeah. I've John I've Cobb and Daryl spoken Griffin, with John Cobb many that, times. Yeah, yeah, David, yeah, yeah. David Ray Griffin. Yeah, sure. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well. So that's how I did. And I came back here in 89 to chair the philosophy department. So I had a key moves in that period. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, those were key. So you got your PhD at St. Louis. St. Right. Louis, St. Tell me this. Is that, is that a Jesuit school? St. Louis? Yes, University? it is. Yeah. It's okay. a Jesuit college. A Jesuit but they accepted University. you, but they accepted you. Yes. They accepted me to study there. And then they called me back to, to in a sense, to rebuild the department because oh, it is, we, most of the Catholic schools took a shellacking. Boy, I'm dropping all this stuff out of my ears. Wait a minute, one second. They <laughs> took a shellacking. Your... They took yeah. a shellacking in the late seventies and eighties because as they more and more they were losing, they didn't have the Jesuits to take over again. So we made had thirty or forty or fifty Jesuits teaching at SLU. When I was there as a student, there wasn't ten left. What a time! Because just a natural attrition. Okay. Yeah. And so it was a significant change taking place, and many of the schools were were all broke during that time. They couldn't afford it. They were used to having religious order people teaching. Well, by the mid-80s and the late 80s began to recover. They began to build their endowments. And it was I was part of the recovery. And so I was brought back to rebuild the department. And that's what I did. I took to, I, you know, chair 28 years. I think I hold the record. Yeah. I'm sure, actually, I do. Yeah, so. That was my career. Okay. A little bit off topic, but. Sure. Uh, Vatican II, good or bad for the Catholic Church? Well, I, 
That's a great question. I think I believe in the, the I believe any council is the spirit is is motivated and governed by the Holy Spirit. I believe that, okay? Mm-hmm. But I think it had a huge negative effect in the beginning. I believe in the Second Vatican Council very strongly. I'm grateful for it, but it was traumatic for me personally. Okay? How so? How so? Because it it, it when you bring in when you critique the cult the, the the systems of belief, the pieties, the systems of the belief, the liturgies, etc. When you start tapping with that, you're tapping with the narrative. Whether you intend to or not, you're affecting the narrative. And people believe through the narrative, through the cultic narrative. And once you tap that, you unleash the whirlwind because mm-hmm. people believe through that. So when I joined the order in '59, okay, we were in the old, we were in a very deeply Latin. A cultic church. I use cult in this sense of being uh, sacraments. We're sure. Worship, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then in '61, I was a novice. When I took my vows in 1962, I had no doubt that I would live a monastic life, life within within that Latin culture, that Latin, Roman Catholic Latin culture, cultic culture. Okay, I'm playing with a word there for the rest of my life. At the end of 1962-63, the council began right at my birthday in October 62. By the, sixth, the spring of 63, Humpty Dumpty was off the wall. Yeah, Everything collapsed. And with my two years in Jamaica, Long Island, when I was studying philosophy, they were the most traumatic two years of my life, hmm. faith-wise and even emotionally. Guys were leaving left and right, and they weren't leaving to get married. They were leaving because they lost their faith. And I it remember seems to, it, so it, it, yeah well it seems to me that that what you're saying is is in line with Marsha McLuhan and yes. the medium is the message you can't okay. change the mass without changing you know the form you can't change the form of the mass for uh, for instance as part of the Second Vatican Council reforms right. without also changing the message of the mass is what I hear you saying. Yes, but what happened was to the benefit of that was, I think, our theological insight. And it, now it takes roughly 100 years to recoup and to reform, mm-hmm. not to go backwards. You can't write the history book backwards. You have yeah. to move forward. Okay, you can't put new wine and old wine, wine, mm-hmm. uh, wine scams. That's the gospel this morning. <laughs> this morning. Yeah, yeah, Actually. yeah. Okay, Matthew. Okay, mm-hmm. um, you can't do that. And I'm glad because it was liberating in the best sense of the word. It, what happened, the Vatican Council did what John XXIII wanted it to do. It globalized Catholicism. Uh-huh. It globalized us. And so that meant we, could, we were not going to impose a Latin culture on the rest of the world. The Catholicism was going to be the religion of the world insofar as it was going to be the gospel message within the cultures of the world, not just Western European culture. And that I, I'm grateful eternally for the Vatican Council, but Second Vatican Council. But if you had asked me in 1963, when I laid on my bed in the monastery there wondering if I had a soul or not, that's how shocking it was. Mm-hmm. And even in 69, when I got ordained, I had no idea what was going to be because it was, we were taking shock after shock hit, but the truth of the matter, it opened and it opened and now I'm eternally grateful for it because it brought a breath of fresh air to Catholicism and it globalized us. We finally were a world religion, not a European religion converting the world to Europeanism. That's the bottom line. But but you're also, but but you're, yeah, but you're also saying we're only halfway 
you know, if, if you say it takes a hundred years for kind of the dust yeah. to settle after such a massive shakeup like that, we're only halfway there. Oh yeah. We're not even close to being done. Not even yeah. close. Oh, yeah. sure. Yes. Yeah. And I think you're going to see something. You're going to see a deeper earth centered spirituality evolve out of it. A much more intimate relationship between a Christian gospel and not environmentalism as an ism, but a really deep and loving respect for the earth. Mm-hmm. So one of the troubles was when, especially as it flowed out of the, um, what let's call it the Cartesian Newtonian dualism of the 17th century through to the 20th century was a soul body separation and the belief in salvation of the soul. Yeah. We recognize now that at we are with Leopold, we are citizens of the earth. And so was Christ. And Christ mm-hmm. was a citizen of the earth. And hence the whole world is sacred. Not because it symbolizes, has some primal, so you see a fish, you think Christ, but because the goddamn fish is sacred. Yeah. The fish is sacred. I shouldn't have cussed. The, the no, it's, is, uh, cussing is welcome. Okay. The, the fish is sacred. <laughs> Those deer on yeah. my wall are sacraments of life. I don't, that okay. bear that sits next to my chair is, is a sacrament. That is not a, tro- that is not a, a, tr- a trophy. It's a sacrament I, of life. I, I want to talk to you about this. I mean, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. I want let, let's go down this path for a second, this okay. incarnational path, because yeah. it seems to me theologically that um, you know there, there are several paradoxes within Christianity that we are asked to hold, to, kind of uh, you know competing truths that would otherwise outside of the Christian mystical framework would seem mutually exclusive the trinity for instance but let's right. just take um the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ okay it seems to me that most people you know i've i've sometimes compared it to like a uh rolling a a bowling ball um down the lane it, it it's easy for that ball to fall into the gutter of either people tend to emphasize Jesus of Nazareth, the human, or Jesus the Christ, the, the divine. It, it seems hard for our human brains to hold those two in tension. And it seems to me that uh, at least, I, you know, I'm not as familiar. I know a lot of Catholics, but I'm not as familiar with Catholic theology, but that Protestants, particularly Protestant lay people, are more likely to think of Jesus as the divine, as someone who's kind of almost walks, uh, you know, ha- walked around a foot above the earth. You know right. what I'm saying? And yeah. you tell people, as a theologian, I'll be talking, and I'll just say offhandedly, you know, something about blah blah blah. Jesus was doing this, and like he didn't know what was going to happen next. Well, people are horrified. <laughs> what do you mean he didn't know? He was God. He knew everything that was going to happen before it happened. Mm-hmm. And and I'm trying to emphasize his his humanity. It seems to me in in reading some stuff you've written that the incarnation and the humanity of Jesus is really central to your entire theological outlook and and your work as a hunting ethicist. Yeah, that's true. That's exactly right. That's why for me, yeah, it's absolutely true. When the incar- I, first of all, I read John's prologue as the incarnation was the intention of God from creation, not an afterthought. He wasn't here to fix up a bad mess. He wasn't here to fix up Adam. 
Okay. God always he, knew. God always knew that God was going to somehow yeah, incarnate so, God's self. Yeah, I call it the humility of God. He wanted to be a creature. He couldn't. He wanted to be a creature. Okay. Call yeah. it the adventure of God. There is no adventure in the Trinity. There is, of course, but you get what I'm saying. But boy, the yeah. God Almighty, there wasn't. There isn't the evolutionary process. And now you take it very evolution very seriously. Yeah. Not as a fixed plan, but as a great, great narrative of accident, mystery, grace. Etc. And culminating in the incarnation, and the incarnation culminates in Good Friday, when Christ mm -hmm. enters into the death experience. And I take that very, very seriously. Very, I'm mm -hmm. a passionist. Mm -hmm. I look everything in that way. So yeah. the incarnation sacralizes the great story of evolution and creation. So I take it very seriously. The problem, I maybe give you two cents worth. Maybe I'm absolutely out of line, but I just tell you. Protestantism emerged in the in the post-Renaissance Enlightenment period, and there was a fierce separation between mind and body, and therefore God and creatures. But I'll give you one more, and it's the biggest problem we have in the environmental movement, is that the world from the 17th century on was Newtonian, or from Galileo yep. into Newtonian, and that's the world is a machine, okay? Mechanized machine. We didn't know what to do with the human body because we thought it was a machine, so you got to get that soul out of there. Yeah. But if you see it organically and not mechanistically, which is the postmodern period, okay? Hence, white-head, hard-drawn. But I think Aquinas in the Middle East. Sure. Then incarnation, put it this way, then the human body relationship is intimate. You can't have a human soul without a human body, the body without the soul, the mind and the heart go together. Hence, even the incarnation. God is imminent in creation. God is imminent in Christ. It is only one person there. It's Christ, the human divine being. And therefore, God engages the universe from within as a member of it. Mm -hmm. He makes holy the whole great story of creation, evolution, and redemption. There is one great event. The way I look at it, God is present in the world as both creator and redeemer. So the world is sacred. It's not because he made it. It's because he redeemed it and joined it to redeem it. Is in the sense of giving it a deeper, more, a deeper, holier purpose. I'm not saying that well. So a hunter engages, a hunter engages in the sacred. They, the Native Americans knew all that stuff. Hell's yeah, God, read they, Black yeah. Elk. Read Black Elk. And the guy turns out to be Black Elk, as you know who he is, the Lakota Sioux shaman. Yes, of course. Yeah. He becomes yeah, a Catholic yeah. and he becomes a deacon. Right. They had 400 converts. Uh, Bishop Barron wants to canonize him. I would canonize him before any some of my fellow paisans in Italy. Hell bells. <laughs> Give me a shot at somebody who really loved the earth, okay? Not yeah. just pasta and meatballs, okay? I'm yeah. just telling you, okay? That's We need that earth spirituality, and that is what Vatican II gives us is your shot at that incarnational spirituality. Not taking from the divine, it's enriching the vision of the divine eminence as both creator and redeemer in the person of Christ. He changes everything because he makes what is good holy. He takes the good of the universe and he create and he makes it holy by his own enfleshment. And death and resurrection, he even transforms death. Death from yeah. an emptiness and a horror turns into vehicle of redemption. We fill up those things wanting in the suffering of Christ. That's a how, God, what a corporate vision of reality. Holy moly, Andy. Huh? Yeah. God. No, I, I, you know, I think you and I, I, I think you and I are on the same page. I'm, um, I, I wonder though, how does that inform your 
hunting life the this idea how how does it make you a more sensitive compassionate hunter because uh, i i i'm guessing you're similar to me i both as uh somebody you know with a, a phd in theology and somebody who's a clergy person i don't find i often joke you just don't find many people like me in a duck blind i i i just don't i'm sure you've been in the same how many other of your passionist brothers are active hunters not one that i know <laughs> okay like yeah. so you're in you're in an extreme minority which must mean that a lot of times you end up being an apologist in your circles for you know your your favorite avocation which is hunting so how do you defend that and and justify that to your skeptical peers well let me say this i i don't run into skeptical peers it's just people who don't have the same experience but i i've never been criticized for it not with any order nor within the priesthood huh. i'll say there's a big difference between the east coast northeast where i'm from and yeah. the midwest the difference is in my opinion okay my experience all right the northeast is intensely urban and uh the corridor between boston and washington but between boston and washington intensely urbanized i remember taking a train from uh new haven to dc for an apa meeting and it took us all the way to delaware before we were out of the city okay mm -hmm. that's the, the the northeast experience out here in the midwest you're five minutes from the woods that's and, right and and that's true of the i noticed the, the priests that i knew here all had a familiarity with farming, the woods, they didn't come out of this intensive urbanized existence. St. Louis is a, a city bordered by a vast amount of land. Mm -hmm. you, I drove out to uh, to Forbes Lake, which is on eastern Illinois, okay, where I have my pontoon boat dock. It's mm -hmm. 105 miles of pure country. Once you cross the Mississippi River, you leave one thing, you've got a little of these little, New England, these little Midwestern towns like Lebanon and Salem, they're gorgeous little places, okay? It's all woods. It's all trees. It's all uh, land, uh, farm after farm after farm, cornfields. Yep. When I drive up to Wisconsin to visit my friends up there, hell's bells. You take 55 north and then 39, you don't see a town. I want you through Springfield, which takes 11 and three three thirds of a second. Okay, you got nothing but wilderness. So not wilderness, farm, not wilderness. Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin is woodier, but mm -hmm. boy, Illinois, and that's an openness. It's the vastness of the land. I argue that that's the American experience. Yeah, is that once you finally turn your back on the East and turn West, you feel the experience of open freedom. The, it's and it's the freedom of the land. Okay, mm -hmm. that's why you got guys out here that don't have that urbanized ethos built into them. There's a difference, and I love mm -hmm. the difference so much that I could never return to live in the Northeast. You don't miss it because you grew up in you no. grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, right. which is a right. very urbanized place. That's all yeah. it is. Yeah, we had woods. You know, we used to my dad and I and my brother used to go rabbit hunting, squirrel hunting, just yeah. north of us. Okay, Northford. But that we used to joke about it. Small game hunting with squirrels, big game hunting with rabbits, and I mean that. <laughs> and occasionally we shoot a pheasant or partridge. You know, but but it was out here that I really discovered. Well, I learned it a little bit in Maryland. Maryland is very much not part of that corridor, okay? There's a real uh -huh. wild tradition, hunting tradition in Maryland. But when I came out here in 1971, 
I saw it's like, and I I could never live like that again. Kentucky's the same way. Yeah, just wide open. You know, it's it's the land. The land yeah. is there, and so is the wildness of the land. And what kind of hunting do you do now? Like, what is since you've been back to St. Louis these last uh, what th- about three decades? Yeah. What what's been your uh, main type of hunting? Just primarily deer hunting. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I used to do a lot of rabbit and squirrel hunting a lot, but I haven't done it. It just, I don't know why. Uh, it just fell off. Yeah. And the deer hunting, I'm still intense. Uh, I line my, I go out the whole weekend and then I'll, I'll race out in the evenings and I hunt 30 miles from here so I can get out in the afternoons and I'll to go, go up my tree stand. And then the following Saturday, following Sunday, I usually hunt most, almost every day, not quite. Yeah. Uh, out of a 10 day hunt, I probably hunt fully five of those days and partly a couple more. Uh, but um, as I've gotten older, and remember we talked before we got on the podcast, the motivation for me has diminished, I have to say. And so I don't have a sufficient reason to take the life of the animal. I'm still okay. going to hunt, but I yeah. may not shoot. Okay. I want to, I, I want to, I want to home in on that, that phrase you just used because it's, okay. it seems important in your, uh, ethics and your morality yeah, of, right. of hunting, a sufficient reason to take the animal. Can you right. unpack that for me a little yeah. bit? Well, the metaphysics is simple, okay? And the metaphysics is this. The living animal is a good thing, and his or her life is a good thing. So I cannot but, wantonly destroy something good unless I have a proportionate reason. When you say good, when, when you say, sorry to interrupt, because yeah. I think this is also, when you say good, you mean it in a, in a, almost like a philosophical, like an Aristotelian sense of good, yeah. right? It's intrinsically good. It's better. Yeah. It's, it's a good thing. It's a yeah. good thing to be. It's a good thing to be alive. It's a good thing to be free to, to, in a sense, in, in the naturalness of the, of the environment, to be a deer in the deer in a, in a forest. It is a good thing to be a deer in the good. In, in a woods. But the deer okay. does not have rights. No, there's a deer. No, you got to be careful here. You got to slow down. That's the good. <laughs> the, okay. the deer, anything ha, by the metaphysics, I'm a metaphysician. Anything uh-huh. that exists, it, that's St. Thomas. It's called the transcendentals. Anything that exists is good and beautiful and true. Okay? So the extent mm-hmm. that it exists, it is good. To the extent that it's good, it, it is true and beautiful. I would say, yes. Okay? Hence, yeah. Being a good thing, its goodness is intrinsic to it. I don't make it good. The tree I'm looking at out the window here, I don't make it good. It's good because it's a tree. It's alive and it's a tree. Okay? Therefore, I can't go out there and say, geez, I don't have to do that. I have to fucking cut it down. No, you can't. You better have a reason for it because you're killing something. You're destroying right. something. Any more than you could go and tear a statue down and beat it up, a work of art. You can't. That's, by the way, if you read Eugene Hargrove on that, he bases the, he's a hell of a writer. He's the editor of Environmental Ethics, if you don't know that. Hargrove argues that the basis of environmental duties is the aesthetic, the objective aesthetic quality, inherent character, character of any living thing. That it is beautiful and you cannot destroy the beautiful. He's right. But beauty isn't what I attribute to it. It is intrinsically beautiful because it is good and, and, and it exists. Therefore, it has intrinsic goodness, not merely utility goodness. Utility goodness means I can use it for something. Okay, it's got it's the most extreme form of it is anthropocentrism. 
the only thing that is good is good for humans. No, it's good because it is good. Mm-hmm. And you can see you can use Genesis for that. In fact, Calicut does, uh, commenting uh, when he's talking about that beyond the, the land ethic. That it, you can use Genesis. God doesn't say, gee, it's good because, you know, Adam could use it. He says, and he saw that it was good. It's intrinsically good because it exists. Once you say that, so intrinsic good means, means there's limits on what you can do with something. You cannot whimsically, wantonly destroy a good thing. We know that about art, okay? We certainly know that about other humans, okay? But that means you can't, you can't destroy something good just because you want to. You have to have a proportionate reason. Proportionate reason is clearly, when it comes to the animal community, food. But it can also be conservation, mm-hmm. okay? The need, let's say, we especially in conservation, not preservation, but conservation, we may need to trim herds. We may need to govern carefully, humbly predatory activities, such as wolves and bears. And we may have to. We've been excessive on that regard in the past, meaning we've gone without, overdone it. Uh, we may need to manage by killing, okay? What has Whitehead said? Something to the effect, killing is life-sustaining, okay? Mm-hmm. So you can, you, the, the natural community is a community of life and death. And with the human community, given our huge imprint, imprint and the overall eco, echo impact we have, we have to manage it. That's called conservation. Yeah, It doesn't take away its intrinsic goodness, but it also recognizes that even though something is intrinsically good, it doesn't have an absolute un, absolute value such that it c- cannot be taken for sufficient reason. The way I say it is, uh, in Latin, it's uh, bonum and say bonum ad abalio. It's good in itself, but it's also good for another, which means that everything that's intrinsically good also has relational goods. That's an echo model. That's ecology. Uh-huh. In fact, uh, Leopold's great on that because in the pyramid, we're only three quarters of the way up. <laughs> you could easily be food for f- food for a bear. And there's nothing wrong with that. The be- you wrong time, the wrong place, and the bear gets you. That's because you're a member of the biotic community. You're in the pyramid. See? Good in itself, bonum analio, but good also for other purposes. <laughs> a lot of it, but, 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 okay. I, I... I, I don't disagree with you, but I'm going to play devil's advocate, Father okay. Ted. That a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of fellow modern urban Americans, uh, will struggle with this idea of you basically putting humans in yeah. like a, a hierarchical, you know. Yes, uh, that's right. Back to the old uh, medieval, what the, the the chain of being or whatever that we all That's learn right. about in in history that 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 it, humans have some kind of rights that supersede other members of the biotic community. Correct. That right. is a bitter pill for a lot of modern Americans to swallow. Yes, it is. That's what a great battleground. And, and upon yeah. what did, do you base that? I mean, you're basing it on philosophy. You're basing it on the 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 biblical tradition. Um, t- tell me where you come, how you come to that. The distinction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, minimally philosophically, because we're the only entity, biological entity, the only thing we know of other than angels, and we don't know that. Okay, that is a matter of faith. Okay, 
Mm-hmm. But in the, bio, in, in, the, in, the, in the living biotic community, okay, we're the only ones that appear to have reflective knowledge. It generates the ought, ought to do this, ought not to do that. And we're able right. to raise it to the moral level of universal principles. Kant is right about that. But so is Aquinas, and you can go all the way back to Aristotle. We're reflective animals, and we have a reflective kind of language. We use universal terms, and they're binding terms. We have th- We have... Uh, concepts of justice and fairness, et cetera, et cetera, say, run it out. The animal communi- community does not show that. Doesn't, it shows instinct, instinctive and high level. Boy, my lily is as sharp as a tack, but she doesn't, yeah. she doesn't morally reflect. She reacts, okay, brilliantly, but reacts. We have to think out. So when I see a bear, I have to think whether I want to shoot it or not. When I see a deer, I made a judgment. Okay, the animal doesn't. The animal acts on its instinct. So it's going to act efficiently on its instincts. I don't. Kant was right. Only humans have rights in the sense of limiting conditions based upon moral law. Okay, that precludes, uh, which precludes interference with us without our informed consent. Rights guarantee your right to be treated according to your rationality and your freedom, okay? And therefore, to you deal with me, you have to deal with me as a rational free being. That's what a right is. That is not the same as an intrinsically good thing. It mm-hmm. presupposes it in the human and goes beyond it. In everything else, we can at least argue for intrinsic goods. There may be some species, higher species, that have reflective intelligence that would accord rights. I wonder about whales sometimes. Some of the higher uh, um, ape species or subspecies, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm not going to attribute rights uh, to anything other than human because the only animal that I know of and that the human race seems to know of is humans who can make and act on moral law. That's Kant. He was right. Mm-hmm. It's also the great tra- the tradition of the Middle Ages and the rest. We are answerable for our decision-making because we know what we are doing and we are acting under moral principles and laws. Okay, the animal kingdom is not. If it is, it's really remote from us to understand it. On the other hand, that doesn't give us a right to exploit them, to harm them, to inflict pain on them, or to take their lives wantonly because their lives, they are good in themselves. They're intrinsically because not a right. Okay, but it is a goodness. Most people are absolutely uninformed about that instinct. They think uh, something that is good has a right. Has a right. It does not have a right. Hmm. It has a goodness. That's a key distinction. It's crucial. So human rights, let's say uh, social justice rights, are not the same. Uh, and when applied to humans, it's not the same. It could not be applied to the animal kingdom in the same way. We are not murdering something. We may be immoral in killing something, but that is not murder. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Murder yes. means I've taken the life unjustly of an animal, namely a human animal, had a right not to have it taken. A right. Okay? When I shoot a deer wantonly, I'm not violating his rights, but I am destroying his goodness. And therefore, I have to give it a sufficient reason for it. If I don't, I've done an immoral thing. Not because I violated his rights, because I destroyed a good thing. Mm-hmm. That's what holds me back now. I don't have enough reason to squeeze the trigger because I don't have a sufficient reason to take the life of that animal. When because I saw that life go out of her, uh, his eyes, that last year I took, 
I said, I can't do this anymore. I don't have a good enough reason. Okay, and yet you still hunt. Yep, because I want to engage in the intimacy of the, the predatory prey relationship. And you still have and you still have a gun when you go in sure. the Okay, but but you don't uh, do you think that maybe this fall when you're in the tree stand that you will pull the trigger? Like, will something? Yeah, that's a good will, question. Will something I don't change? Will, will you say, "I now I need the meat," or now the deer herd in this area? That won't be, enough, that won't be the reason. That wouldn't be a sufficient reason because you don't need the no. meat because you can no. always buy meat. <laughs> and the and conservation issue is not significant enough. Because why? Out. Because taking one deer out of the herd doesn't call it enough to make a significant no, difference. Different. No, it's not. But I you're can part give of you a, my reason. Let me give okay. you my reason. Yeah, let's hear it. I can let's give you my it. reason. Um, this is going to sound tricky. I'm going to call on a lot of experience now, okay? Okay. There is an intimacy between the animal whose life you take and your life and and your, and your you, okay? And I'll show it to you. When I take a deer, it's interesting. You see some of the photographs. I'm always kneeling down with the deer and thanking them. Instinctively, I thank them for their lives. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for it. There's a sense in which the animal gave me his life. I killed two bears in two days, three days, up and after seven years, five years of not getting a bear up in Ontario, mm-hmm. I shot a sow on a Sunday night. I'm stuck up there with the black flies and mosquitoes and all that shit. And I said, I don't want to go out anymore. But what am I going to do the rest of the week? I was with two other guys. So I asked the outfitter, Bill Ritchie, I said, Bill, I can go get another tag. Let me. I better go out. Maybe I'll go out again, sit on my stand. He said, well, you got to use the same stand because he had other hunters. I said, okay, I'll never get it. It took five years to get one. It'll take me another five to get another. So I went out there knowing I'd never get a shot. What do you think happened? I was sitting on my ass about 9 o'clock at night. Who comes in front of me 100 yards away to another bear? Okay? Uh-huh. got to be kidding. It's all legal. Okay? I got the tag. He went in and out, in and out, in and out of the bush. Okay? In a sense, he was way away from me. He knew I was there. He got a nose full of me. I might guess he was behind me, and he circled me. Away. And then he, uh, he went down a road. He went away, the logging road. And I said, uh, well, I've got a reason to come back tomorrow. So I'm sitting there. All of a sudden, he walked right in front of me. He walked right smack in front of me, and I, I shot him, and I killed him instantly. And I remember when I went up to see him, went up to, to him, the, the feeling of both massive regret and also enormous gratitude. When I shot the first bear, I was just relieved to finally got one. Finally, I got one. That's not the way I felt now. I said, he gave me his life. He gave me his life. And I felt like that in almost every big animal or any animal I've ever taken. He gave me his life. Give me an example. I had a, caught the biggest smallmouth bass about two years ago. And I was going to mount her, Okay. She looked mm-hmm. at me in the eyes and said, oh, crap, go make some babies. I threw her back in the water. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you another story. This goes together. A friend of mine, Tom Leisher, is in the Boone and Crockett with me. He's a professional hunter, a professional member like myself, but he's also was the head of the park service up in central Alaska in the, in the interior. And he told me one time he had a, he had a cow tag for moose. Okay. And there was a, there's a road, a dirt road divided the season is if the if the bull no the cow was north I guess north or east east of that road legal west of it and you're talking twenty feet okay not mm-hmm. she wouldn't cross the road for anything she walked right past them okay 
And what he said to me was so poignant. He said, she didn't give me her life. Mm-hmm. He didn't say, God, what shitty luck. She didn't give me her life. I believe him. I've only lost three deer in my career, my hunting career, where I, where I, um, I couldn't find them. Yeah. And all three were sucker shots. There were does. There were sucker shots. And I talked myself into each shot. They were not far off. They're 20, 30, 40 yards away with nothing to it. I did not miss them, okay? Mm-hmm. I never found them. One I found during the rabbit season, the remains of what was left of her. I had walked right by her trying to find her oh. after I shot. And I told me something. She didn't give me herself. I took her life. She didn't give it. Hmm. I believe that stuff, okay? So you don't. So you don't have. I mean, if you look at it that way, do you carry regret? Because it hasn't happened to me. I haven't lost. Yeah, I've I lost do. plenty of pheasants and ducks, but I haven't lost yet a a, a larger animal. Yeah, I um, do. But, but even I'm, when I do lose it, <laughs> I still feel it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you're, but you're so d- does that <laughs> d- does that somehow temper your regret when you get you're giving the animal. A, a great deal of agency when yeah. you say the animal didn't give its life to you. Yeah, I know. That's the mysticism of the hunt. You're not there yet. You'll get there. <laughs> tell me about tell no, I love <laughs> it. I I mean I I also have this uh, weird you know, I, I I know that experience of shooting um a deer thinking you're going to come up to a dead deer and the deer is still alive. And it is, it's a very, very difficult experience. And I think it would uh, sour some people on hunting for good if they, uh, you know, it's very different to kill a large animal with eyelashes at a hundred yards than it is at five yards. Absolutely. Because you see um, the life go out of their eyes. Yeah. You see the killing act. You see them die at your hand. That's exactly yeah. right. It's so hard. Most of the time, by the time you get there, it's over. But no, because a good shot is roughly it's eight seconds. If you shoot them in the lungs, that's why you always aim for the lungs. Right. It's it's the most painless, quickest death of all, because he stops breathing. He just lays down and dies. If you shoot too far forward, you'll break his shoulder. You're going to get the lungs too, maybe if you're lucky, and you're going to have a very slow death or difficult. You may run off. You shoot back. God, forget it. You mm-hmm. shoot him in the stomach, he won't die for hours. Yeah. You'll never find him. Never. That's waste. You know? This this conversation we're having now ties in with your work as an ethicist for Boone and Crockett. I know that they, you know, well over 100 years ago, trademarked the phrase uh, fair sure, chase. Sure. Yeah. But I think, um, I think, from what I've read again of yours, that you think that phrase fair chase is often misunderstood. So can you help yeah. us better yeah. understand it? Yeah, it goes back to what you said before or raised the issue of rights, okay? Fair mm-hmm. chase is often stated, and I try like hell to fight it because it's a disastrous mistake to make. And that is to think you have to treat the animal fairly. In other words, give them a chance, okay? And so they'll say, did you was, did you give the animal sufficient chance to get away, escape? Yeah, it, it's something so, mm, something in the Boone and Crockett. I've looked yeah, it up because something yeah, in the Boone and Crockett definition says something about providing the animal a viable means of escape. Correct. That's right. In other words, like no no high fence 
uh, right. I'm Texas hunting to, ranches, yeah, something like that. Right. I'm very opposed to hunting ranches. Very. Yeah. I did one once. I in southern Tennessee, I hunted four. I would never do it again. Okay. Mm-hmm. But no, I am very opposed to. So is Boone and Crockett. Now Boone and Crockett's opposed to it for a number of reasons. Some of them being uh, inbreeding and the danger of inbreeding yeah. and all the rest, and then bringing in exotics. God, you want me to fight something? I'm fighting the exotics because you are really playing with fire. Yeah, I remember I was got me into Boone and Crockett. I was on a a, a um, panel, nineteen ninety two, with Boone and Crockett members. They didn't know it at the time, and Wayne Pazelli from Animal Rights Group, from the Fund for Animals, said I was on hunting ethics. And in that uh, in that discussion, um, uh, oh, I kind of lost my train of thought. I was it Boone and Crockett. Uh, how how yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. In that session Ed, that we were having. Um, Oh, I forgot what I was trying to say. I lost my train of thought. Just an old man, but it's okay. It's okay. Um, we, we were talking very, we were very t- aware. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was just going to say again. we were talking about fair chase and okay, um, that's it. Means yeah, of escape. that's what it was. Yeah. See, it isn't. It isn't a case of letting the animal get away or this and that. It's really, and that's when I began to define fair chase in my mind. It has to do with the hunter, not the hunted. So fair chase means you hunted in an ethical manner, means you acted properly. Mm-hmm. And that entails two things, massively in two things. One, it's legal what you're doing. And second, it is for the good of the, for minimally good for conservation. You are not doing harm to the animal community as such. So fair chase has to do with human excellence, human moral excellence. Okay. It has not to do with whether the animal has rights or not. If you have animal rights, that's what happened in that session. And if you argue animal rights, then the Wayne Pazellis of this world, the people with animal rights, eat you for breakfast and crap you off for lunch because you gave away the argument. Yeah. So I'm never going to tell you that it, that it's a matter of rights. It is not. Fair chase has to do with the moral character of the hunter. And therefore, the hunter must enter the hunting predator-prey relationship honestly. Not canned. That's why I'm so opposed to canned hunting, because that's not hunting. I know what it was. The guy I was, I think it was Paselli, or else it was somebody from Animal Rights Group. Said what they showed a film and so some guy, namely it's guy be in Texas on a game ranch shooting a tiger. Okay, right. shooting a freaking yeah. tiger. The guy's there in his sport clothes, goes in, walks up, shoots a tiger. The tiger's under a tree or something. All right. Mm-hmm. Probably came from a zoo, all right? Probably an old tiger. And the guy said, what did you think of that? I said, nothing. It's not hunting. And he said to me, why isn't that hunting? I said, there's no relationship between the hunter, the hunted, and the land. There has to be a continuity between the animal and the land, and the land being Aldo, Aldo Leopold. Since I didn't even know who Aldo Leopold was then, but I knew that wasn't hunting. Hunting, you engaged in the continuum of life and death within the land. As such, where the animal is indigenous. If you said to me, you're going to give me a free hunt, we're going to go hunt an elephant in New York and in, in, in Texas, but you want to I mean, you want to turn me into a killer? That's all I'd be is a killer. Yeah, I'm not a hunter. I, okay, I feel the same about that, but let me throw an ethical, you're an ethicist. Let me, I'm going to throw an ethical hunting situation at you. Um, yeah. uh, 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 this is, I think, you know, a, a, for me, more of a gray area than the high fence ranch full of exotics in Texas. But let's say um, 
it's a hunting preserve, a game, what we call, I think most other places call it a hunting preserve. We call it a game yeah. farm here in Minnesota. So okay. we go out, they raise pheasants and chuckers yeah. in a pen and then they put them they out release them. Yeah. they release them. Right. And then you go out and here's my justification for that. And you tell me ethically. So I'm saying I will go out there once or twice in August to get my dog on live birds so that my so that I will have less waste. I will I will lose less birds during duck and pheasant season when I'm hunting wild animals. Eth am I just am I am I um rationalizing an unethical behavior by saying this is to I'm doing this to train my dog? Because I'm not in I'm not really in a relationship with the land, like you're suggesting, and these animals aren't wild. I mean, a, a pen-raised pheasant, you know, uh, uh, biologically is the same as a wild pheasant, but it does not act the same as a wild pheasant. Um, no, it but it gets my dog on birds. It gets him on the scent. It gets him uh, kind of in uh, in shape for the hunting season. I think, in my opinion, okay. Yeah, tell me. I'm tell me yeah. it's unethical. No, if it is, no, I want not. you to tell me. I want no, you to tell not. me. No, because you have a sufficient reason. Your long-term reason is not only the honing of the dog, and you can't do it any other way, okay? And it also means you will have a less – you're not going to have as big a negative impact on the uh, wild community that you would have had if your dog is, in, uh, is out of shape or is not capable. So the very justification of hunting – Wild birds with dogs warrants the proper the proper preparation. I'm gonna give you a, so another issue, okay? Not okay. quite the same, but you have an obligation to prepare for the hunt, yes. okay? You have an obligation because you can't wantonly kill, all right? I would say they take a deer hunter. You better be ready to handle a rifle. If you're not ready to handle a rifle, you have no business going out there because what are you gonna do? You're gonna wound them. Now that mean can you practice on live animals? No, you can't. But there is at least this analogy, analogy. You have to be prepared. When you have a dog, you have to keep that dog sharp. I had, I had an English setter back in the late 70s, early 80s in Louisville, and I did not have her on enough birds, okay? And she, mm -hmm. I ruined her. Peggy was one hell of a dog. I ruined her. She needed work. What I should have done was go to game farms and work her, work her, work her, so that she would be efficient, okay? Because it's not a machine. You've got to get her on top of her game, okay, so that you don't have waste or else you're going to have waste. Mm -hmm. She's not going to yeah. find the birds that you've knocked down. She's not going to find them. No, we've all, we've, so all hunted over, we've all hunted over shitty dogs before. That's right. It's Trust a terrible me. experience, yeah. Well, let me go on further. Um, if you were to go to game farms and that's all you did, then I'd say it's wrong. Okay, okay. You just wanted to kill. You just, you're just looking at fun. I have yeah. a lot of problem with European hunting for that reason. It's a sport. The driven, the driven hunts, they call them, yeah. Yeah, but even when, yes, to me, that it's just a sport. And that's not, hunting is not, that's another word. I never call hunting a sport. It's not a sport. Football is a sport. Interesting. See, sport requires uh, parity of competitors. That's not what we're dealing with here. Which is which gets back to the the the, the I think maybe you know not from when it was uh, first used this fair chase, but 
when you hear nowadays, you hear fair chase, a lot of people are going to think, oh, it's like a sport. You want the, you want it to right. be fair. You want both, right. you know, both football teams have 11 players on the field. That makes it right. fair. Right. Um, That's why I reject that. That's exactly why the I reject animal, it. The animal doesn't have a firearm. The animal is no. not, you're the predator. It's a, a predator-prey relationship is at its essence not a fair relationship. It's not, no, an, it's not. at least a, not a relationship between equals. No, it's not. And then that's exactly correct. It's not fair in that competitive sense. That's I think I learned that as much from the wolf that I encountered, but also an experience. Well, I want you to talk about that wolf. I don't want you to skip over that wolf. Tell me about that wolf you encountered because you've referred to it as an epiphany, which is, yeah. is also a word I'd like you to unpack because it's not a word that maybe everyone is no. is familiar with. Well, when I was hunting in uh, Ontario in 1987, it was a memorial hunt for Bill Ritchie, who had died in uh, in in, uh, in the fall, in November 4th, 86. So he was my outfitter guide, okay? And his son, Lark, was a superb outfitter, uh, hunter, uh, uh, guide and hunter himself, okay? His own right, he was having a memorial hunt for his father. And it was this, the Sunday nights. So it was the opening night of the hunt. It was raining. It was, he had to see this thing. Edgar Allan Poe couldn't mind anything better than this. And it was a hunker down deep in the, in the Ontario forest. I mean, we were deep. And I'm off a logging road. And in front of me, about 40 yards away, 35 yards away, was bait, the bait to draw the bear in. That's how you hunt them in Ontario. If you don't hunt them with dogs, you hunt them with bait. If you think it's easy, it took five years for me to get a bear. So it's not, it isn't that easy. You got to be patient. It makes deer hunting look easy, trust me. Okay. In any case, that night, I swear as God is my judge. I had my poncho, my rifle was under my poncho. I knew something was behind me. And I knew that bears would sometimes get a nose for you, check you out, might come into blind with you. Not going to bite you, just to know what the hell you are. And then go to the bait. Now, if there was a bear, I'm not going to move. I want him to go to the bait, then I get a shot. Mm-hmm. So I turned very slowly. I mean slowly. And behind me was a wolf. It was. I walked it off after he left. It was seven steps away. Fierce, wild ass wolf. Looked me right in the eyes. We looked at each other in the eyes. I saw what Aldo Leopold saw. I know what he saw. I saw the wildness and the ferocity in his eyes. The wildness. And he welcomed me. He accepted me. I kept thinking, my God, he accepts me. He accepts me. He's not running away from me. Didn't attack me. I didn't expect that. But he didn't run away. Wolves are very shy. They're efficient killers. It's not worth it to him to take me on unless it's, it's the only way he can eat. So he's not going to bother with me. So he walked past me, never took his eyes off me, walked in embankment about 20 yards away, looked at me, and then he walked away, went back in, disappeared. And I have to say, I didn't want him to go away. The why was an epiphanic experience. I follow Rudolf Otto's belief that. The essence of religion is the feeling of creatureliness. And that wolf accepted me because I was a creature, a fellow creature. Without Leopold, fellow citizen, and I felt it. I felt my creature. And so you're saying anim- he, he accepted you because uh, mm-hmm. you don't think of that wolf as your equal, but as mm-hmm. animal to animal, he accepted right, you. Exactly. Good, well put. Animal to animal. I was huh. a member of his inner community. Yes. Huh. I wasn't foreign to him. If, he, if I felt a foreign to him, he would have shied away. He wouldn't have come close to me. He came within seven steps of me. He was checking me out. But he accepted me. I felt his acceptance. 
And then when he climbed the embankment, he's got his eyes right on me. He hasn't taken his eyes off of me for one second. So he, he was neither uh, he was neither afraid of you nor threatening. Nor nor okay, okay. Neither one. He wasn't afraid of me. Cautious. He wasn't he, he wasn't threatening you and he wasn't threatened by you. That's exactly right. There's the acceptance. Huh. There's where the acceptance was. And that's the truth. Now tell me this uh, to tie back to what we uh, you know talked about from the very beginning of the incarnation. I've heard you refer to that experience with the wolf as something that brought you closer to Christ. Yeah, and I wonder true. I wonder if you can um expound on that a little bit. Well, first you got to go to the experience because what I experienced in the wolf I I know it's going to sound bizarre i experienced christ in that wolf didn't mm. understand it but that's how i experienced them and it's only later upon reflection i realized because the incarnation brings christ into the whole community see the incarnation makes christ leopold makes him a citizen of the earth and in that sense you're going to find christ the redemptive christ in everything that exists i gave a retreat to nuns one time passionless nuns and i mentioned the story that i felt right they never invited me back <laughs> they said i was crazy <laughs> well maybe i am but that's how i experienced it and laughingly i said i think I, that was bill wolf that was bill ritchie visiting me and somebody from ontario wrote and said bill ritchie ever came to visit you'd come as a wolf that was interesting i felt the imminence of god in that i felt the in, imminence of god in the yeah. wolf not I'm not a pantheist at all. I'm not a pantheist, but I'm also not. I'm not a. Uh, I'm not an 18th century Enlightenment philosopher either. I'm not Kant. I'm not separating the two worlds. Right, right. I'm an incarnationalist, and so God's going to reveal Himself. God reveals Himself with the glories of the earth, and yeah. also the glories of the wild kingdom in the ferocity of His eyes. That wolf, to me. His acceptance of me was as incarnational as anything I ever experienced. That was, I would rate that as one of the deepest religious experiences in my life. Hmm. Was that moment because I felt my creatureliness. I know what Leopold was. I know what Leopold meant, and I also know what Otto meant. When I read Rudolf Otto, I, I know what he's saying. What creatureliness yeah. is not a sense of dependence. That's that's Weimarker, but it's. Be deeper. It's, it presumes some of that, but it goes way deeper. It's the feeling mm -hmm. of your creatureliness. And there's nothing like the wild kingdom to teach you your creatureliness. You are definitely not in charge. You are not the dominator. You're a member. You're a mm -hmm. member of the biotic pyramid. And once you have that, the, the whole world gets radically transformed. Everything becomes, in a sense, epiphanic. Everything reveals, you know. I love the uh <laughs> I love that I'm also talking to a monk and a and a priest and a scholar and the bells are you know the right, the bells yeah. keep ringing every 15 heard, minutes. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, before I let you go, um you know Protestants uh like to have their crosses empty and catholics like to have their crosses with a dying savior on them right, right. um i i i fear that protestants too often you know we're too removed from um i i feel like protestants are in love with the cosmic christ of the gospel of john and forget the incarnate christ in the synoptics um sure mark 
the last words of Mark Christ and Mark, oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, that, yeah. oh, no, that's it, that's yeah, it. I'm yeah. going to send you, I'm going to mail you a copy of my latest book, which is, yeah. I think those are the most important theological words ever spoken. So but, um, okay, it, it, we, we, Jesus came to bring a kingdom of peace. Right. And I'm sure you preach peace. I preach peace. And yet we're very involved in this violent um, endeavor of hunting where we cause death and bloodshed with torn flesh. Yeah, but um, that's not right. And you're, well, you've talked about it as a sacrament, which is, um, you know, a, 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 like a, a material, physical uh, symbol of a spiritual truth in some ways. So uh, t tell me this then, how do you jibe that, those uh, uh, preaching a kingdom of peace that Jesus came to bring peace, to put an end to strife and violence, and yet we're, you and I are involved and, and in love with um, a, a, an endeavor that is inherently violent, which is hunting. Okay. You know, that's a great question because I used that expression recently on another thing that I did a video of somebody, I forgot what it was. There was something I just did and Lark Ritchie was listening to it. Lark, that's the fellow from, from, yeah. from Canada, okay? And he raised that issue because I used the word, you have to find beauty in the violence, okay? The truth of the matter is the natural community is not violent. It's deadly, but not violent. Violent is a violation. It's, it's something that disrupts the natural biotic community. The hunter is not acting violently because he's not doing something or she is not doing something in disaccord, disaccord with the natural community, using a weapon for sure because we can't use our hands, okay? We've evolved to the point we need weaponry to, to accomplish that end, but what we are doing is inherently natural. It's natural to procure your own food. It's so it's not a violation. So it's no, not a it's violation not. of the or of, of the order of things. No, it's not. That's why it's oh. not violent. Interesting. The word violation is not a violent act. Okay. In fact, it's an intimate act. Huh. That's why I said that expression. It seems so freaking odd because if you think of it as violence, it seems like it's a rape. When I said that the animal that she gave me her life or that I did, she did not give me her life. I forced it and therefore I lost her. Remember, mm -hmm. I told you about the does. Yeah. Okay. It's an intimate act. Killing uh, the hunting act because it is a natural act within the living community is not a violent act. It's an intimate act. You're mm -hmm. taking the life that was given to you by the animal. It's given. Mm -hmm. It's not taken. You didn't rape her. You didn't murder her. She gave you her life, and that's it. You've got to acquire the mysticism of the earth. Yeah, it's a word. I just said it. There's a mysticism uh, to the hunt, and if you yeah, don't have that, yeah. then you're going to be conflicted. But once you have it, you're touching the real. You're understanding it, and you know where the restraints come in, that you cannot. That buck that I saw last year did not give me his life, and I knew it. Okay, I then I – I keep. I. I. I want. I have this one more question. I want to get to okay. then is okay. The animal is giving you its life. You're according the animal a certain amount of agency. 
if the animal has the ability, but the animal doesn't have consciousness. So maybe no. is so the animal's not choosing in in a moral no, sense. No, no. If it was, then it, then you'd have a right. No. Then it would be a right. So it, but yeah. it, 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 you're saying it's almost an instinctive choosing, an instinctive agency that the animal has if it gives you its life or not. I want to say a mysterious one. Okay. I don't have okay. the word instinct. I don't know the right word. Okay. I don't know what it is, but I know it is. I know that it is, but I can't explain why it is. But I know it because I know the difference between a lie. I have no doubt when that relationship is there and the giving is there, I have no doubt that rifle comes right up. I'm not thinking about it. If when I'm hesitating and thinking, not because it's a difficult shot, it's right under my nose, this sucker shot. Why am I hesitating? Because she didn't give me herself. I had a buck a couple of years ago. It was really cute. He was easy shot at about 100 yards away, but I had my rifle resting. It was an easy shot, but he had to turn just to his left a little bit. Not much. Mm -hmm. One mm -hmm. step. You think that old sucker would give me the shot? And he, I, so he turned and went in. I think a little runt. See? He didn't give me himself. And I was kind of glad. I said, good for you. Go make babies. <laughs> he just stepped to the left, I'd have shot him. Yeah, yeah. He turned to the right. I didn't regret it. In fact, I got a kick out of him. Okay? Yeah. yeah. It's life. Beautiful. You're engaged in the great mystery, the adventure of life itself. Hunting beats going to the grocery store. In this sense, hunting, Amen. you engage it immediately. In the, in the intimacy of life and death, the intimacy of life and death, life exchanged, spiritually and physically. The grocery store, you're exchanging nothing but dollars for flesh. Mm -hmm. That's the truth. And I'm a guy who goes to the grocery store, okay? Mm -hmm. I wonder someday if I ever saw a steer being butchered, if I'd ever buy a steak again. I really wonder. Because yeah. I'm getting closer and closer to that all the time. I don't want to look into that animalized. No chance, no nothing. Just being bred to be butchered. At least yep. that deer is not bred to be butchered, but bred to live. Yeah. Big difference. All right. Well, Father Ted, oh my gosh, what what a joy to talk to you. And uh, I could talk to you for another hour, and I hope we get that chance. Okay. Tell Bryce, if you see him, tell him I said hello, okay? Yeah, I will. And um, you take care, and we'll maybe we'll check back in with you uh, in December and see if you if, – if a deer – Gave, gave him or herself life. to you this November. Okay. All Forget right. Stay out of trouble. Okay? All right. Take care. Take Peace care. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.